Happy Independence Day to Sierra Leone. Happy Independence Day. Happy Independence, everyone. Happy Independence Day to a beautiful country, Sierra Leone. Happy 60th Independence. Sierra Leone, west coast of Africa. Known for its beaches, rainforests, wildlife, and of course, its diamonds. Its busy capital city, Freetown, a symbol of new life for freed black people from various countries, is home to thousands today. Today, we celebrate 60 years of independence, as the nation became independent on April 27, 1961, after years of colonial rule. But what does it even mean to be independent? To understand what's happening now, and even what has happened in the years leading up to independence, we have to go way back in time. Much of the land that is part of what we know as Sierra Leone today was the territory of ethnic groups such as the Timni and the Mende. Early accounts from the Portuguese who had been trading with tribes on the coast of Salon since the 1460s and onwards stated two distinct groups, the Shapes and the Mins, the latter indigenous, the former's invaders or migrants. So who were the Shapes? The Portuguese realised that although the Shapes lived relatively at peace with each other, and communicated with each other, they were not one homogenous group. As we know now, the Sapes would have been Limba, Temni, Bolom speaking and other West Atlantic speaking people. But we know the Temni are not the oldest group in Salon. They may have been there before the Portuguese, but we know they migrated from the Futa Jolon region in Guinea throughout the 11th and 12th century. So we are left with the Bolom, Limba, and West and other Western Atlantic-speaking people. The Limba have no history of migrating anywhere else, even oral history they claim to be indigenous to Salon. It's, and the Bolom-speaking people are also said to be one of the oldest groups of Salon. So we know that the oldest group of Salon, the original inhabitants, were West Atlantic speakers. But where does where live where does that leave the Mende people, for example? Well, the Mende are part of the main people and the main migration into Salon, which drastically changed the climate of Salon. As you know, ethnically and regionally, it drastically changed things. The main invasion happened around the mid to late 1500s. The main invasion were of a Mande-speaking people, said to be from the Mali Empire. They are said to be from the southern region, the southern stock of the Mandi Empire. The main invasion created the tribes, and we know now today as Mendi and Loko. And it's also said to be on another groups as well. Well, we know that the Mendi and Loko were most likely one unitary, one unitary people, but 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 because because the main invasion or migration. So it was over a long period of time, certain mains migrated first and created their own tribe. The Loka were the first to come in, which is why the Loka have slightly 
different language to the Mende. Although the language are interchangeable, it is slightly different. The Lok have more Timni characteristics in their speech, whilst the Lok or do not. We know that the Mains were most likely led of people from the Kamara clan, and through oral history, the Mains have even stated that they were led from a lady of high status in the Mali Empire who was exiled, and she brought a big group of people with her, a large group of people with her. This lady is known as Queen Masariko. This is why this change. This is why in Salon a lot of Mende are situated in the southern region, Pujon region, and which is close to the border of Liberia. It's close to Liberia. This is because of historical reasons. Now, one concerning what did Vikununo Salon look like regionally? Well, it would have looked relatively to what it looked like today. We had such kingdoms known as the Kingdom of Koya, established by the Timni people in 1505. We have the Solima Kingdom, which was established by the Yalunko people in the northern regions, northwest regions of Salon. And we have the Birua Kingdom, established by the Limba people. There was a king in most kingdoms who had a council of elders. They made, them, they made most of the decisions they would choose captains of armies, for example. The armies were small-scale armies and locally recruited. There was also poor society, which we still have today, but less influential. Poor society initiated men from different classes and towns. This society helped with control, order and peace. They would, they would, for example, they would intervene in wars if they were too long. And even after the war ended, they would organize peace with among those two fighting groups. The Pova also organized hunting guilds. Hunting guilds were very sacred, and and, and people must be initiated to, to become to get in within within the society. So not anyone could join. And information about the rituals was sacred within the society only. And when regarding terms of. Uh, uh, medicine and uh, surgery. There are accounts of surgery being done in the Solima Kingdom that is just as advanced as, at the time as European. As a European explorer had stated his life was saved when a local doctor extracted coagulated blood from his brain using a gourd which was heated. And there's also accounts of the Birua Kingdom which was flourishing in trade, gold, ivory hides and even had schools and learning centers. The Bureau Kingdom was also very organized and even impressed and was so and the British were so impressed with it which is that that they would even give gifts to Amami Soluku who was a leader at that time as as the British were located within the southern region during that time period and the Bureau Kingdom was more so in the northern region of Salon. In terms of where people are situated today it is relatively the same. This is why we have chiefdoms in, in certain regions which have historical names linked to old kingdoms. And the people or tribes in that region right now are, would have been in that region, say for say, 100 years ago, for example. So as a whole, there is not much difference in terms of, in terms of ethnically and regionally differences in what Salon looked like. Even concerning Creoles, who are mostly situated in the western area, that's because the Creoles came to Salon 
1787, they are descendants of uh, Jamaican Maroons, who are warriors from from Jamaica. From um, Jamaica, we have there were also Africans in Britain, known as the Poor Blacks, the Nova Scotians, uh, Gulagichi. These are people from the diaspora who came back into Salon after the grain gained freedom. And also Salon has a historical point where a lot of uh, slave ships were captured and those people then migrated, those Indus people then integrated within the Creole population. So Creole are very diverse people. So, and as a whole, yes, regionally and ethnically, Salon looked similar to what it looks like today. Towards the end of the 18th century, more and more people arrived in Sierra Leone. The new settlers lived in Freetown, which became a melting pot society mixing the various languages, cultures and influences that the people had to offer. In 1895, Britain solidified their power by declaring a protectorate. A protectorate is defined as weak territories protected and partly controlled by stronger ones. A country defends its protectorate, but it doesn't own it and it doesn't meddle with the protectorate's internal affairs. In theory, this meant the British government only exercised limited control. I'm not sure how true that is. The reality was very different. Part of this included having a formal administration. And the way they justified it was for this to be paid for, tax would have to be put on the homes of people in the protectorate, which we now know today as the provinces. But those taxes were bogus and made no sense. The British believed that the natives would be scared into paying the taxes. This started warfare in the north. The British burned villages, farmlands and pastures. Almost every chieftaincy in Sierra Leone responded to the British with resistance. Most of the rulers in the south rose up against the British intrusion on April 27, 1898, which later became Independence Day, 63 years later. This was called the Hut Tax War of 1898, by most historians anyway. In the History of Sierra Leone, a concise introduction, which was published in 1981 and written by Professor Cecil Magbailey File, he calls the so-called Hut Tax War a protest of local rulers and the 1898 war. When it comes to Sierra Leone and colonial history and the way it's portrayed to us today, it's really important to remember that many of the things that we are reading serve the purpose of emphasising the good that the British were doing on behalf of the Sierra Leonean people and that the Sierra Leonean people were ungrateful and they were irresponsible and they were just refusing to pay tax. It makes it seem like people who were resisting the British were doing so for no reason and that the British simply had cost to cover. What we really saw was the fact that a lot of the chiefs understood that if they paid the tax, it would mean that they no longer owned their own homes. And the chiefs were aware of what the British were asking them to do, to recognise and accept that the British owned Sierra Leone. The tax was a way of the British testing out if they can really get chiefs to acknowledge British leadership. Thankfully, they refused. There was no longer any more any fallout wars between the British and Sierra Leone natives. 
the war ended in many casualties and since then there was there was just the use of riots and strikes this was done throughout this period because the Syrians had established a trade union system a trade union this was similarly done in Britain as well they had used the same thing trade unions organized strikes that were effective in damaging and damaging uh, the the British rule. After this, there was more and more tension, a lot of strikes. One to mention was the strike of 1919. And this was because there wasn't payment of the war bonus to African workers, even though government employees and especially the European ones had been paid. I think that this is important because when we think about World War One and the way that it's portrayed to us in education, it makes it seem as though there were no black soldiers there and there were actually a lot of Sierra Leonean soldiers there. You can really see that this is one thing that would have really fueled the desire for independence. The use of strikes were all very organised and instead of going full out attacking someone, they can be used to indirectly cause havoc. There was multiple strikes. For example, in 1919, there's a strike and riot as a natives as the railway native Africans were not paid, whilst the Europeans were, and they were not paid that extra bonus for war, for extra wartime bonus. This was post World War One. In nineteen twenty-three, there was a riot. In nineteen twenty-six, as well, a riot. Nineteen thirty and thirty-one and thirty-four, there was riots. These riots were so organised and threatening to the British administrators. I also want to pick out another example that I thought was quite significant. So there was a railway strike in 1926 where strikers and the working class came against the British colonising power. Professor Akintola Wise, a Sierra Leonean historian, believes that this was the first strike and act of disobedience in which the Creole elite supported. There are way too many events to name, but to keep it brief, there were more riots, resistance and a developing idea of nationalism we started to see more workers' strikes and unions being formed. In 1938, Wallace Johnson started the West African Youth League in Freetown, mobilising workers in trade unions to go against the colonial government. This was despite the fact that the British actually passed laws stopping the publication of so-called undesirable articles. Still, he was a great organiser who was dynamic and bold and he knew how to bring people together. In 1955, when there was another riot, the British brought out uh, an army and in fact a few people were killed. The British had a really uh, organised system that kept them in place. Because trade unions are a great way to mobilise workers, a British trade advisor decided to regulate the trade union movement in Sierra Leone, stifling any effort of the workers to be in solidarity with one another. He did this by offering scholarships to British universities for any moderate trade union leaders and tried to guarantee that they would be appointed to important government positions. A good example of corruption. Following World War II, rapid decolonisation swept across Africa 
as many countries gained their independence from European colonisation. European powers were also very broke, so they couldn't afford the resources needed to maintain control over African colonies. This allowed people who were pushing for independence to negotiate very quickly and with very little damage. But one of the biggest issues in the country at the time was the fact that the country was very divided between various ethnic groups. There was a divide between who people thought were natives and who people thought weren't natives. It's very important for us to understand sort of the colonial context. Sierra Leone's colonisation was very different to other West African countries, wherein you had the colony, the crown colony, and then you had the protectorate. The protectorate was still very much traditional indigenous chiefs ruling over their chiefdoms with no real interference by the British, right? It was collaborative rule. So you have um, the chief of Gunubu ruling directly with the governor general, right? But then you have the crown colony, which is the coastal region, including Freetown, and I think bits of Bonf that were under formal control. That was also Creole lands, right? And you have the Creoles who very much their identity was based off of being very similar to the to the Brits because of slavery, because of the removal from the continent, right? And that's, so when I say that, oh, they've modelled themselves after the British or their culture takes a very British sort of, um, it looks like Britishness from the outside, that's only because of slavery. That's only because of the, the violent removal from the continent and from traditional ways of being. Um, but it was those people who were favoured. It was those people that were given... Um, colonial positions and kind of colonial favour. It was those people that actually lived in the colonial core. And it's those people that now today you see have had money, have had prestige, have homes on Spur Road, have homes on Wilkinson Road, have big business, um, have contracts being given to them by successive governments um, or have really high positions when they come to the UK um, or they came to the UK and migrated early as economic migrants pre the war um, and they had all of these opportunities because of the colonial favour that was bestowed upon them like have received contracts from um, successive kind of like APC governments um, especially in kind of that post-independence period and they're the people who kind of migrated to the UK to the US in the 80s and have been established here long since and when you see in the diaspora most people will be Creole um, and like you see that kind of the ethnic tensions back home also between indigenous Sierra Leoneans and Creole people being a result of kind of class conflict um, as well as cultural differences um, so it's very I think we need to take note of that and how colonialism specifically and that that structure aided that and created kind of like the tensions that we see today. Um, and then also kind of like Mende people and their, their political prowess because of like people like Milton Magai, Albert Magai. At no point in history, in our history so far, have we actually worked cohesively as a nation, as, a, as one unified country, not even under colonial rule, we were still separated into the protectorate and the, and the crown colony. Education is so important because it's understanding that these tensions that we have are manufactured, that 
playing them out and buying into them is only giving them more power, more strength and more hold over us as as Creoles, as Mendes, as Limbas, as Sosos, as Gizis, as, you know, as every ethnicity that exists in that nation. Integration of the colony, Freetown, and the protectorate, the provinces, started from 1922 to 1951 and changed the political balance. In 1951, there were recommendations made about how to make Sierra Leone's progress towards attaining self-determination a reality. Part of this included increasing the number of African representation on the Legislative Council, and it also allowed for appointments of Africans on the Executive Council, making them eligible to hold ministerial positions for the first time. So this was the start of active party politics in Sierra Leone. The Sierra Leone People's Party was founded by protectorate politicians and became one of Sierra Leone's major political parties, which it still is today. In the Observer newspaper, Dr. Milton Margai said that the protectorate politicians were determined to obliterate the gap in achievement between the Creos and the protectorate people, particularly in education, in government service and in politics in general. In 1957, the government conducted a general election where SLPP won a majority of the parliamentary seats. After winning, SLPP replaced all British officials on the Executive Council with Sierra Leoneans. Some of the challenges of gaining independence can be seen within the friction between the Sierra Leone colony and the Sierra Leone protectorate as to different political systems. Even to this day, there are different laws, for example, one pertaining to land owning within the western area and the rest of Salon. There was friction between the Creoles, who dominated the western area, and the other Africans within the um, what is known as the Protectorate. And the friction made it hard to unite and deal with the main objective, which was independence. As leading up to independence, there was multiple parties who wanted to be in charge. Another challenge that uh, Salon had when leading up to independence was the British influence and how the British used indirect rule, used the chiefs as puppets to establish power. These challenges were overcome because civil unions united in the end of the day, they came to an agreement um, even and a big, a big uh, role with this was played by Sir Milton Margai. Sir Milton Margai was very influential, was very patriotic for Sierra Leone. He wanted Sierra Leoneans to unite. He represented all Sierra Leoneans. He was a leader for the whole of Salon. He did not care for specific tribes. Um, even though he was pro-British, he still wanted an independent Salon. And and Sierra Leoneans, in the day, came to an agreement. Um, when returning to the colony and the protectorate, they came to an agreement and as a whole, Syrians united together and gained independence. It was clear that Sierra Leone was moving toward independence. This aspiration became a reality on April 27, 1961, when the colonial government granted political independence to Sierra Leone. I think one thing that is very common is that we put so much emphasis on Independence Day 
But everybody forgets about or doesn't know that Sierra Leone becoming a republic is what made the real difference. It made a difference because this was the point where it was official that power would be held by the people and their elected representatives. Queen Elizabeth was removed as head of state. Sierra Leone became the Republic of Sierra Leone on April 19th, 1971. The energy was high as the people of Sierra Leone marked a new beginning, a dawn of a new era, one where they had their own self-determination, little or no foreign interference, freedom to practice their own culture and religions, and freedom to have the most say in their future. When it comes to the celebration of Sierra Leonean independence, we see that people believe everything that I just said, that Sierra Leone actually had its own self-determination and no foreign interference. But we know that that's not the case. When I think about words and, and structuring words together, when you put post and colonial together, you'd assume that that is post after the end of colonialism. But if we really um, examine sort of the relationship that exists between formerly colonized, like formerly, formerly colonized um, nations and their like former imperial powers, you see that there is a continuance of that relationship. Um, if it's the Francophone West um, African countries, not just West Africa, still using like the franc, um, a currency tied to kind of French economy and French gold reserves. Um, if you look at where aid is given to former like British um, colonies by the British, um, if you look at America's relationship with um, loads of new African nations, you see that that was formed in the post-independence like, period. So once African nations had gotten their independence, you see places like the Soviet Union, as well as like the US trying to establish um, trade relationships, diplomatic relationships with these um, nations and continuing sort of this um, economically dependent, socially dependent relationship um, with African countries. So I wouldn't say that we live in an era that is free from or independent of colonialism. Like these structures still underpin the dynamics and the relationships we see today. I think Salon is very much still vying for Western approval and to look like the West and to look like the British, to sound like the British, to module education after the British, to value the the values the, the British valued. Um, and I think you see that in education, how they want people to to write and what they want people to know. The education system, whilst it's it is being improved and it is being made better, it's being modelled after Western education systems that kind of focus less so on community and culture, just being very much modelled after Britain because that is what is seen as successful and a successful way of being. Joe A.D. Ali is a Sierra Leonean historian that wrote a book called Sierra Leone Since Independence, History of a Post-Colonial State. In that book, he writes that certain assumptions underpinned the transaction process when it came to independence. He writes that the traditional authorities would have to play a dominant role in the new political system. I think one thing that is really interesting that he mentions is that 
If the agreement didn't work out and the British were unable to get what they wanted out of independence, they would ensure that any radical politicians would never get the reins of government. One thing that people often wonder is, why is it that in countries like Sierra Leone, we seem to have very weak leadership? We don't have radical leaders or people that really want to redesign systems and change things for the better. That is often because of intervention from countries in the global north that want to basically control the agenda. If they made sure that radical politicians could not lead, then they would be able to have the same relationship with Sierra Leone where they continue to take and take. There was a need for independence because Salon was being exploited heavily by the British. None of the resources that the country had was being used to build infrastructure or actually benefit the natives the way it was supposed to do. Sierra Leone very much still kind of has the memory of colonialism in the fact in the way that they form relationships with other nations based on oh if you if we allow you access to xyz will you guys give us this it's really awful that i don't have examples i'm thinking of like the the mining industry right now the fact that loads of um corporations that are foreign owned are allowed to come and mine and extract bauxite iron ore um and even now, coltane, I think, has been found in Salon. Um, so it's like we have all of these natural resources, but the production and the, the cultivation of the land is owned by the Chinese, the Belgian, the French, the British, um, in return for, for, for what, really? Sierra Leonean governance must resist individualising and individual, must resist individualism um, because that's not what is authentically Sierra Leonean. Like, community is at the core of, um, I think, our, our national identity. And we do see that when we look at, like, our religious um, cohabitation. And there are lessons to be learned from that in, in how to govern and how to really incorporate people and, and, and have tolerance, have kindness, have community and care. There are, what, only 8 million Sierra Leoneans, but I see more kind of, like, a federalized separate um system for Sierra Leone where you've got like provincial leaders that all sit maybe in one one place and say this is what's great for our region this kind of like everyone doing what works best for themselves but together because we have been together for what 60 years now so we are learning to like each other and we are really working well with each other and there are lessons to be learned from what one chiefdom does as as opposed to another but i don't see this one sort of to total um absolute kind of like power figure saying i'm the president of the republic of sierra leone because what even is the republic of sierra leone if we have acknowledged that a post-colonial and independent Sierra Leone doesn't really exist. So what would make Sierra Leone better? I think it's really important that we have more um, women leaders, empowering more women um, to participate in politics and also participate just in like local economies and local communities. For fostering community and also understanding community, women leaders have shown a good example of that um, so far, like with examples of Jacinda Ardern and like Rwanda. Um, but I also don't think that 
the nation state is the the best model for um, African nations, and and most definitely not for Sierra Leone. This governance and this governing that we've been doing, we ha- we haven't been doing anything for ourselves, and clearly that hasn't been working. Um, and clearly under capitalism, it, it won't work. Like we will always be the disadvantaged. So I think we need to be more authentic to our traditional ways of being, um, more community focused, more region focused, um, to really transform kind of um living conditions establishing a model where everyone um has a voice that is of value a voice that will contribute to to kind of the eventual changes that will be implemented i think it's it's just creating a forum that is is for everyone and i'm not sure how to do that and i think it's it's good that i'm not sure and i say i'm not sure because i don't have all the answers and no one With a country as complex as Sierra Leone, we have to take time to think about and analyse our history and recognise patterns. We haven't managed to touch on everything and we don't have all the answers, but I hope that we'll be able to come together properly as a community to create a better Sierra Leone. Thanks for listening. Happy Independence Day.